Welcome back, everybody. Another episode of You Make Me Sick, a podcast dedicated to pathogenic microorganisms and sometimes other things that will make you sick. Uh, today we are going to discuss RSV. I'm going to get to that in just a second. I'm uh, going to touch briefly just on monkeypox, as I like to the beginning of every episode. Uh, it's once a month, I think, the WHO is meeting, and I don't know if they've had their meeting yet or not this month to discuss where the epidemic is at this point. Didn't see anything on their website about it, so kind of a brief update. Uh, I'll just give you the numbers right now uh, in the U.S. and worldwide, but nothing really new to report as far as increased numbers or deaths. I don't really have a lot of data to give you. I can tell you right now that in the U.S. there's about 29,000 cases, 29,248 to be exact. Uh, there have been 14 total deaths in the U.S. since the beginning of this epidemic. And globally, there's about 80,899 reported cases right now. So I think probably on my next episode, you know, update uh, just a little bit more on where we are as far as the monkeypox epidemic is worldwide and where, you know, what direction it's headed in. I think there'll probably be more information from the WHO uh, and the CDC by then. But uh, until then, we'll kind of, you know, I'll keep an ear out. But uh, today we're going to discuss something that's been in the news a lot lately, and it's actually uh, really relevant this time of year, and that's RSV. So... We'll kind of delve into what RSV is, who it affects, uh, the typical stuff I talk about. I'll talk briefly just about the virus itself, uh, what it's made up of, and how it affects the body, uh, any kind of treatments for it, uh, and all that fun stuff. So, so let's get started here on the RSV. So what does RSV mean? So it actually means respiratory syncytial virus. Uh, what's a syncytial? You know, a good question. So in biology, uh, something that's a syncytium is a single cell or a cytoplasmic mass that contains several nuclei. Uh, and these are kind of, these are formed together by fusion of the cells and by the division of the cells. It's kind of like a clustering almost of cells. And that's kind of what RSV, uh, when it attacks the kind of airways and linings, there's clusters of these cells. So that's kind of where it gets a name for a respiratory syncytial virus. Uh, it is really common, uh, common respiratory virus. It usually just causes mild cold symptoms. Uh, most people recover in about a week or two, but it uh, can be serious depending on the age group. So children, especially uh, infants, are really susceptible. And then older adults, too, and the elderly can be very susceptible for it, too, or from it. Uh, it is the most common cause of bronchiolitis, which is uh, inflammation of the small airways of the lungs, uh, and pneumonia, which is obviously an infection of the lungs, in children who are younger than one year of age. Uh, there's a couple of different reasons for this. Um, according to the CDC, uh, RSV annually causes about 2.1 million outpatient hospital visits per year, and there's about 58,000 hospitalizations in the U.S. for children under five. That's a normal year. This year, we're seeing a lot more of it. Uh, it's been kind of a hot topic in the news, uh, especially in infectious disease circles, just due to the surge in cases in hospitals and worldwide. Uh, it's to the point where some hospitals, especially here in the U.S., have actually been reaching out to the government for support just to, just to overcapacity. Uh, a lot of children's hospitals are kind of on divert because they've had so many admissions for RSV uh, in small children. So it begs the question, you know, RSV, it's been around since the 1950s. Uh, it didn't start as a respiratory virus, but it's something that is seasonal and that we see every year. 
and typically it's not a serious illness, but uh, this year has been very, very hard on uh, small children, like I said, children's hospitals in general. Uh, it is theorized that this might be part of uh, the whole COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, normally, by the age of two, all children have actually been in contact and have had RSV, so they've been able to build antibodies to it. But if you think back, any kids that were born you know, two years ago, or even within that time frame, they really haven't had a lot of exposure they might normally have by going uh, either to preschool or being around other little kids, uh, just being inside with their parents and their parents also who haven't been around people who have been exposed to RSV. So there's a, a theory that there's something that's actually called an immune debt. And this is carrying over somewhat into the adult world too, where people who just haven't been exposed to these normal, typical seasonal viruses and colds uh, due to either wearing masks, which helps prevent it, or just being in public and around other people who are spreading these germs, uh, that we don't have the immune capacity to handle uh, getting these viruses that have been around and you know circulate year to year and are typically seasonal. So it is, uh, I wouldn't say it's controversial, but there's not a lot of data to say if that's what this is or not, but it has been theorized and it's a you know relatively good theory that uh, physicians, even in the immunology world, have have kind of tossed about as to why the RSV uh, has been a little more abundant this year than in other years. Uh, and working in, in, in an adult ICU, we've actually seen it come up as well uh, with some of our patients, our older patients, and those who are immunocompromised and who have other kind of respiratory ailments, uh, asthma and COPD, which is a chronic lung disorder. So it's, uh, you know, it's been a little bit surprising. There's also more testing now, which may be another reason why we're just seeing more people diagnosed with it, uh, because it does present similarly to COVID. You know, it is a respiratory illness. It does prevent, kind of present itself with uh, very similar symptoms to COVID. People will go and get tested, thinking it might be COVID, and then they find out it's not COVID, but it is RSV. So years past, people will get colds. Uh, they'll get sick and they won't even think about going to get it tested or going to the physician. A couple of days later, it's gone. But uh, because of COVID and because people do want to get tested just to make sure they're not spreading it or not symptomatic with it, uh, they will get tested and they're kind of just subsequently being, you know, they have RSV. So they're just being diagnosed with the RSV. But uh, just possibly another reason why we're, you know, we're seeing it more, uh, you know, as far as prevalence, it may have been this prevalent before. Obviously, we just weren't testing for it. But anyway, I digress. So what is RSV? What is the virus itself? So if we want to get into the Baltimore classification of it, uh, RSV, uh, it's a single-stranded, negative-strand RNA virus. Uh, it belongs to the Paramyxoviridae family, and it's of the genus pneumovirus, so obviously affecting the airways. It was actually discovered in 1955 and discovered in chimpanzees, and then it was uh, subsequently confirmed to be a human pathogen shortly after that. Um, there are some other animal respiratory syncytial viruses uh, in the same genus as the human RSV, but they don't infect humans. They're not really zoonotic, haven't crossed over. Uh, and obviously, we won't be talking about those uh, in this podcast. So a um, little bit more about the virus for anybody who's interested. Uh, the structure is kind of a, it's a bilipid layer envelope surrounding a ribonucleic protein core, so an RNA core, uh, with several membrane proteins. Uh, one of those is actually attaches to the host cells, 
And that kind of functions as a fusion once it gets into the human body. And that's kind of what uh, attaches to the cells so the virus can get into the cell, hijack the cell's DRNA, DNA, because it is an RNA virus, to replicate. So uh, there's only one serotype of RSV. So really, can only, there's only one type that would show up positive on a test. Um, and it has two strains, or strain A and strain B. Uh, the differences just consist of a variation in the structure of some of the membrane proteins, uh, specifically the attachment protein, um, but it's kind of inconsequential to what we're talking about. Uh, it is spread just by respiratory droplet, so coughing, sneezing, uh, people, I spit when I talk sometimes, that'll do it. Uh, so a little bit different than some other viruses. Um, we're talking about, you know, COVID-19 or it is uh, airborne, so much finer particles. These are kind of larger particles that you're looking at. Uh, the flu, influenza, that's also an airborne kind of illness. These are much bigger, you know, particles that need to come out to actually infect somebody. The incubation period after you get inoculated with the RSV uh, ranges anywhere from two to eight days with an average of four to six days. Uh, but it depends on the host factors, so it's kind of the age of the patient, um, you know, if RSV was your primary infection or secondary infection, uh, if you're immunocompromised or have other ailments, uh, sometimes those can actually take the body, you know, it's, when the immune system isn't able to fight as well, you get sick a little bit faster. So uh, after inoculation into the nasopharyngeal or the conjunctival mucosa, so it can be spread in the eyes or through the kind of upper respiratory airway there. The virus uh, spreads into the respiratory tract, so down into your trachea, and that's where it kind of targets. Uh, it's the preferred, what we call preferred growth medium, and that's the apical ciliated epithelial cells. So that's kind of what's lining uh, your, your airway there. Uh, once it gets in there, it binds to those cell receptors. Uh, it uses something called the RSVG glycoprotein, and then it uses the RSVF, or fusion glycoprotein, to fuse with the host cell. Uh, then it asserts its what's called a nucleocapsid into the host cell, and then it starts that intracellular replication. Um, like almost all viruses, it, uh, it doesn't have its own DNA. It has to hijack your DNA to replicate. Um, like I mentioned before, I think the orthomyxoviruses, so like the smallpox and monkeypox, are the only viruses that have their own DNA. So um, this is another, you know, hallmark of a virus. It'll kind of hijack your DNA. Uh, once it's in there, uh, the body recognizes this. You have an inflammatory immune response. Uh, this immune response, uh, you know, helps to destroy the virus, but at the same time, it can also cause necrosis of the cells, so cell death, of all these respiratory epithelial cells around the tract of the kind of your trachea and your airway. Uh, this cell death leads to buildup of all kinds of cellular debris. Uh, you get this excess mucus, and that can uh, lead to small airway obstruction and something that we call mucus plugging. So we'll see this in the ICUs a lot of times with our patients if they can't clear their secretions. Oftentimes, once we, if they're on a ventilator for a long time and we pull their breathing tube, um, if they don't have either the capacity to clear their own airway by coughing or aren't strong enough to cough, the mucus will actually kind of build up in their airway and it can obstruct the airway and actually it causes it prevents breathing. So this can actually, this happens in RSV as well. Uh, there's other issues as well. So uh, alongside that kind of small way air obstruction and the small airway obstruction and the mucus plugging, 
some severe cases can actually have lung involvement and then alveolar obstruction. So the alveoli are these, uh, they're in the lung and they're essentially where you exchange your oxygen and carbon dioxide. So if you obstruct those, then obviously you're not going to be able to exchange those gases correctly and you're going to end up with an oxygen debt uh, or hypoxemia, uh, as we technically call it there in the, in the medical field. Uh, other issues is that it, uh, it can inhibit ciliary action. So cilia are these almost like, like little fingers and they help to move debris and other things, mucus, uh, upwards and out of the airway. Uh, when these are actually, so it causes the ciliary dysfunction, so it's not able to kind of help uh, move along all this debris so you can actually clear it out. And that causes that uh, impaired mucus clearance. Uh, it can also cause swelling uh, of the airway, so airway edema, uh, just due to kind of fluid buildup. And that also decreases just the overall compliance of your lung and ability to actually breathe. So RSV um, typically starts as an upper airway illness. So it'll start up top and then as it progresses, if it gets worse, if your body's not able to fight it, uh, it can actually move to that lower respiratory tract and cause a lower respiratory tract involvement. If it's just limited to the upper respiratory uh, tract, uh, you'll just kind of see a runny nose, you'll get some nasal congestion, cough, you'll get some sneezing. Sometimes there'll be a fever, sometimes kind of myalgia and, and feeling like crap. Like I said, almost like common cold symptoms um, typically resolve without any issues. Uh, but in some patients, especially those who have risk factors for severe disease uh, and those who are under the age of two years old, RSV can actually progress to lower respiratory tract involvement and you get that bronchiolitis, uh, which you'll have really what they call ronkerous breath sounds. So almost just really, you know, think about it, kind of junky, <laughs> just nasty kind of breathing sounds. You can... You know, it's akin to like a, sometimes like a, a washing machine, just nasty sound. Um, also have, uh, so tachypnea, so increased rate of breathing. There might be what we call accessory muscle use. Uh, if you ever see anybody who's really tired out, uh, they'll have what we call belly breathing. Uh, this is when they're lying down, it's probably a little more uh, pronounced. Uh, it happens in children a lot too, so you'll see their stomach kind of moving up and down, trying to help force air in and out. Uh, it's never a good sign. Uh, in the adult world, when we see that, uh, we know that that person is really struggling to breathe, and oftentimes that leads to them getting uh, mechanical ventilation, a breathing tube and mechanical ventilation. Uh, you also might hear wheezes, those airways, once they get really tight, the upper airway. Uh, people who have you know, asthma experience this too. Uh, they'll cause wheezing with uh, trying to take breaths in or breathe out. And then uh, prolonged expiration of air too. So you breathe in, but it takes you a really long time to get that air out. So these are all kind of signs that you might see, uh, especially in younger children under the age of two, uh, who have much smaller airways to begin with. So it kind of compounds just all of that uh, when it comes to the respiratory issues. Um, with the severe cases, uh, you might also just have findings of a viral pneumonia. Uh, you get that hypoxia that I was talking about, that kind of oxygen debt. Uh, lethargy, which also accompanies uh, hypoxia and increased uh, CO2 levels. Uh, apnea as well. And then you'll have acute respiratory failure. And when that happens, uh, you definitely need intervention to make sure that you can just kind of stabilize the airway and create better gas exchange. 
Um, in adults, uh, you know, they can have severe symptoms too. Uh, it's, you know, more consistent with a lower respiratory tract infection, such as a pneumonia. Um, and typically in adults, you'll see it in older adults, so the elderly are at risk. And I think that, I want to say the CDC, maybe today or yesterday, came out just with kind of an update on RSV just to, you know, just to inform people that even though it is primarily a pediatric disease, or a disease but viral infection, uh, it is affecting older people as well. Uh, if you have adults who have chronic lung or heart disease, it can affect them. Uh, and adults with weakened immune systems, it can also play a role in just in their overall respiratory health. Um, as far as, uh, you know, those conditions that people might have, uh, pre-existing conditions, like I said, asthma, anything where you already have this pre-existing upper airway condition, where you have issues with constricting the airway, RSV can affect that. There's chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, which is COPD. So that's, there's a few, uh, different, um, diagnosis that are, you know, thrown into COPD. So you can have uh, chronic bronchitis or emphysema. Those are all part of a chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. And then people with congestive heart failure as well uh, have been susceptible to RSVs as far as, uh, you know, in the adult population. So how do we diagnose RSV? So as I said before, there have been, I think, you know, it, it's hard to say if RSV right now is if it's more, if it's more common, I mean, say more common. If if there are more people who are getting RSV right now in the past, or if we're just testing because people are getting tested for other things like COVID, and we're finding out that they just also have RSV, or is the RSV causing it? Either way, um, two commonly used forms to test for the RSV. So there's rapid antigen testing, and then there's the polymerase chain reaction testing, the PCR testing. So antigen testing, uh, it is quick, it's relatively inexpensive, it's pretty specific because your body will have the antigen for the RSV, uh, and it's easily performed, you can just do it with nasal secretions, but the sensitivity is only about 80% for that, so it's, you know, while it's relatively specific, it's not super sensitive, so, uh, but with PCR testing, it's, uh, you know, there are benefits to that. Uh, you can still, it's still pretty rapid, um, it's still pretty easy to use, it's got a much higher sensitivity rate though than antigen testing, and uh, you can also, while you're running the PCR on the uh, RSV, you can check for other viruses or other, even bacteria, uh, just to kind of see if there's anything else that it might be besides the RSV that's causing these symptoms. There are disadvantages to PCR testing. It is a little more expensive, and you have to have the equipment to be able to do it. Um, I will say since COVID, I think that it's much easier. I think most, almost every facility uh, probably has the ability to, you know, run PCR testing. Uh, you can actually, you can purchase a, a cycler if you want. Uh, I don't know how much they are. I know that uh, one of the girls I work with, one of her friends who's a nurse practitioner and her husband who was a physician, during COVID, they actually bought one of these and they were running COVID tests for like a hundred bucks a pop. Like, I, I don't want to say out of the back of their car, but essentially it was, you know, if you want a COVID test, I can get you one to do a PCR. But it is, you can own this if you want to own one. I don't think there are any restrictions to it. I could be wrong. I don't think you'll be put on a list. But, uh, and I think they're probably pretty expensive, but it is available uh, to get a, a PCR cycler. 
you just had it, need to know how to use it. Um, we did it in college and it was pretty easy. And you'd probably watch a YouTube video on how to collect a sample, put it in and run it. Um, but you do have to have, uh, you know, not only the equipment, but I think you have to have probably a, the software to go with it for the database. Anyway, um, there are also radiographic findings in RSV. Uh, they're identical to the kind of bronchiolitis just in general. So they're relatively non-specific, and you really have to have probably a specialist look at it. I think that, you know, but typically that's not how it's diagnosed. You'd use the PCR antigen testing for it. Um, the chest x-ray findings, you might have hyperinflation of the lungs, um, patchy kind of atelectasis. That's where that kind of alveoli gets involved um, and aren't really functioning, almost they're like flat. And then some uh, periobronchial thickening. But that could also be caused by any numeral, any, numeral, any, any number of uh, bacterial diseases or other lung uh, infections as well. So that's why the kind of gold standard is always to try and get uh, like a PCR probably. Uh, for RSV treatment, what can we do? It is a virus, so you know it's. It, there are ways to treat it though. Um, typically, it's supportive care, uh, but you can do uh, immune prophylaxis, and then there is antiviral medication. Uh, typically, the majority of RSV and bronchiolitis cases don't require any kind of medical intervention. As I said before, it's typically self-limiting. Uh, only lasts a few days, maybe a week, uh, and throughout history a lot of other treatments that they've tried have been relatively ineffective anyway. It is a virus so the body will clear itself you know, or it'll get worse and you'll need intervention somewhere else. But uh, there are vaccines in the works for R RSV. There isn't, tip there isn't one right now available uh, but it's definitely something that uh, is on the radar. Pfizer actually just this past month back in the early beginning of November here they announced really good results from a phase three trial that they were doing for an RSV vaccine. And this was specifically for pregnant women. So it, uh, to protect newborns, they were giving th these pregnant women uh, the vaccines and then kind of, I, I'm assuming, letting them have their children and then play it out a year or so later to see. I didn't get a chance to actually read the study, but they had a pretty good result from it. Uh, so it was to protect newborns from severe illness, and they had an efficacy of 81.1% with it. So not bad, I mean, considering that uh, th this is primarily the, the most severe cases happen in infants, it would be kind of nice, you know, but even though there's a vaccine like we saw um, with COVID, it doesn't mean people are going to take it especially women who are pregnant. Uh, and I don't know, like I said, I didn't read the study. I don't even know if it's been fully uh, published yet or if they're just publishing the results for it. I don't know what kind of side effects they've had from it. I mean, it's always a, it, it's kind of a touchy subject when you have pregnancy and giving vaccines because you don't know specifically the long-term results or the long-term effects that it might have. But at least in preventing RSV and severe illness, it works pretty good. I'm going to drink some water. <sighs> All right. Anyway. So uh, the mainstay treatment right now for RSV uh, is really just treatment of symptoms. Like I said, uh, you can do nasal suctioning uh, or lubrication. If you have a little kid, like a, a baby, I think they have those little balls with the like little squeezer balls to remove snot. Uh, I don't have kids, thankfully. 
uh, antipyretics, so Tylenol for fever, and then just making sure that they're getting enough fluids. So uh, if, you know, it comes to the point where they're not drinking and they're severely dehydrated, they may need IV uh, fluids, which you'd have to go in, obviously, to uh, the emergency department. But just trying to keep uh, hydrated uh, fevers, treating those, and then, you know, runny noses and all that. Uh, more severe cases, obviously, might need oxygen for patients who are having hypoxemia. With severe presentation uh, and respiratory compromise, there's always the need for, or not always, but there's sometimes a need just for kind of advanced oxygen delivery. And this can range anywhere from what we call a high-flow nasal cannula. So if you've ever seen somebody in the hospital that have kind of the prongs in their nose giving oxygen, there's actually a kind of high-powered delivery system called the high-flow nasal cannula. Much larger prongs, uh, much more force delivering a much, much larger amount of oxygen, which uh, sometimes that works. If that doesn't, there's something that's called uh, a CPAP. So this is a mask that you put on. Some people wear these to bed at night for sleep apnea. They have BiPAP or CPAP. Uh, and this is actually going to... It, it, provides more pressure to open the airway while providing oxygen as well. Oftentimes, if that doesn't work, or if the high-flow nasal cannula, if, if that's been ineffective, they will need intubation, uh, so the breathing tube, as well as mechanical ventilation until uh, they have, until the virus is resolved, essentially, until they improve enough to be able to breathe effectively on their own. Uh, hospitalization can be recommended for patients who are, are, are at risk and uh, our experience kind of moderate to severe RSV infections. Anybody who obviously is going to need IV fluid will need to go into the hospital. They may not need to stay overnight, but you may have to stay at least until you've been given IV fluids. And then anybody obviously requiring respiratory support would have to be hospitalized too. So uh, there is a form of treatment called effective passive immune prophylaxis. And these are actually what we would call a monoclonal antibody. So uh, there is only one right now for RSV that's used. It's called pelivizumab. So, so hard to say these things. Um, what's nice is they always end in MAB for monoclonal antibody. But uh, pal is palivizumab. So anyway, this, uh, what these do, these monoclonal antibodies, they actually, this one specifically prevents the attachment of the RSV membrane fusion protein that we talked about from actually adhering to the host cell. So pal this monoclonal antibody <laughs> uh, must be administered. So it's gonna be administered monthly just for the duration of the RSV season. Uh, so you're gonna probably be getting it like five months maybe uh, out of the year. It's pretty expensive and there's some debate regarding as there is with most drugs, just the effectiveness versus the cost of it. The, uh, the American Academy of Pediatrics actually publishes guidelines uh, regarding patients who are candidates for these types of administrations, uh, as well as when to discontinue it. Uh, in like a, so they have like breakthrough infections sometimes for people who are on this. Uh, so the American Academy of Pediatrics kind of are the ones who, who write the guidelines for who should actually be receiving these types of drugs and when to stop them. Uh, patients who are included in this, though, and like I said, it's usually prophylactic, so they get it before they actually have RSV. Uh, usually patients within the, like the first year of life uh, who are premature, 
or uh, less than or equal to 29 weeks in gestational age. Any who have chronic lung disease of prematurity, so if their lungs weren't fully developed when they were born, or if they have a congenital heart disease or some kind of neuromuscular disorder. So those are kind of the, if you have a normally healthy kid, you probably would not be able to get this monoclonal antibody, although if you have enough money, you can probably get anything you want. But uh, just to see Michael Jackson with his propofol, um, even though it has nothing to do with RSV. <laughs> uh, there is one antiviral medication that's been approved for RSV, uh, at least in the United States anyway. Uh, this antiviral, which is kind of the third line of defense, um, or it might be the first line of defense, but the third we're going to talk about beyond the support of care and the monoclonal antibodies. Uh, this is called ribavirin. Uh, ribavirin, it's uh, a nucleoside analog, so it uh, can actually be applied for several RNA viruses. Uh, it does, uh, but it shows activity against RSV, which is why it's used for RSV. And it's actually administered in aerosolized form. Uh, this is a drug that's kind of, it can be considered dangerous, I guess. It's, there are cautious, precautions to be taken for it, depending for people who are administering this. So uh, it's been a little bit controversial because it's caused severe birth defects in rats. So anytime you get any kind of birth defects caused in mice and rats when you're doing any kind of experiments, uh, there's usually a warning label on this when it's used for humans too. Uh, Healthcare workers who have been exposed to even small amounts or small doses, they feel it's possible for them to have birth defects. Uh, so there's always, if you have, if you are administering this and you're a healthcare professional uh, and you are expecting a child, trying to have a child, or I think oftentimes even within, you know, just childbearing age, they'll kind of, they'll make sure that you, proper precautions that you wear a mask or not even administer the drug in and of itself because it can be relatively dangerous uh, with regard to just reproductive uh, circumstances. So, um, like I said, questions of efficacy as well with the ribavirin, uh, especially just as far as uh, regarding the mortality of patients who get it or length of mechanical ventilation when they're on it or their hospital stay. Uh, it's, you know, routine use is kind of discouraged, so it may only be used right now in more severe cases. I've only seen it used once in the adult population, um, and that wasn't even for, uh, for RSV. I think it was for another viral infection. This was when I was a nursing assistant, so I wasn't even an RN at that point in time. Uh, I don't know how frequently they're using it right now uh, in pediatric units, so uh, thankfully I, I don't deal with children uh, in the in the medical setting, uh, they scare the hell out of me. Uh, you know there are some other treatments that exist, but there's little clinical data to really support the use. Uh, albuterol, which you know typically you'd use uh, to help open up the airways. Uh, racemic epinephrine, same thing. Steroids, hypertonic saline, uh, antibiotics, and then there's you know just typical chest physiotherapy, but. Uh, these things, I'm sure they'll, a lot of these will probably be uh, prescribed if someone's in the hospital, especially if they're on a mechanical ventilator, just to kind of help uh, make sure the you know, lungs are able to fight this as well as they can, but uh, not a whole lot of data to support their use. Uh, children who are hospitalized, secondary to RSV infection, usually recover without any kind of major incident. They're usually discharged within three to four days. Uh, High-risk infants, though, have longer hospitalizations. 
uh, higher rates of mechanical ventilation as well. Uh, it's kind of expected if you have a you know child with immature lungs and they get some kind of respiratory infection, viral or bacterial. Uh, people usually infected with uh, RSV are contagious for about three to eight days. So sometimes, you know, less to, you know, about a week or so, maybe a little bit less, maybe a little bit more. Uh, and some infants and people who have weakened immune systems can actually spread the virus even after they stop showing symptoms for up to a month. So it can still linger for a while. You know, viruses are pes pesky, nasty little, little bugs. Um, so how many people die each year from RSV? So in the U.S., uh, so first off, RSV leads to about 60,000 to 120,000 hospitalizations, uh, and this is among adults. So let me, let me restart this. So in the adult population um, in the U.S., about 60,000 to 120,000 hospitalizations among adults, over 65. And this leads to about uh, anywhere from 6,000 to 14,000 deaths among adults 65 years and older. Uh, this is according to the CDC. Uh, in children, uh, it's actually linked to uh, one in every 50 deaths among children ages 5 years and younger. Uh, and one in 28 deaths among children between 28 days and 6 months. So it's... Uh, Fairly significant as far as mortality in children uh, affects them much more so than in adults. Uh, and those numbers I actually got from a systematic analysis that was published by The Lancet, which is a, a pretty good medical journal. Uh, globally, RSV, it affects about 64 million people a year, and uh, globally, you know, causes about 160 deaths each year. So... It does, you know, it is, it's, it's very, you know, it's pretty common if 64 million people are getting it, you're only seeing about 160 deaths per year. Still a lot of deaths, but at the same time, compared to how many people are actually getting it, uh, relatively low uh, compared to some other illnesses. And like I said, usually self-limiting, but uh, this year just having, having a higher incidence, especially in children. So, but with that, uh, 160 deaths per year, let's, uh, let's get to our death count. So we're going to take a look at RSV and kind of uh, we'll see what measures up when trying to reach the moon, the top of the Empire State Building, and then wrapping the Earth. This one was a little bit difficult to come up with a, a good number. Um, it's probably going to be inaccurate due to the large number of infants and children who die from RSV compared to adults. Um, <clears throat> but as far as like a number from, uh, you know, I usually use the average height of like 5 foot 5 inches, but I'm going to have to kind of take that and average it out as well with children. So I figured I'm going to come up with a number using, so I'll take the average number of adult deaths, which is about 14,000 per year. We'll multiply that by our average height of 5 feet, 5 inches, and that gets us about 75,833 feet. And then I'm going to just say the average height of, you know, infants to preteen children, let's say it's 3 feet. So that's 36 inches, and then We'll multiply that by the difference is 160,000 deaths per year, 14,000 are adult, so that leaves about 146,000 are, uh, are children. So I'll multiply that by 36 inches, that gives us 438,000 feet. So we add those two together and we get about 513,833 feet or 97.3 miles of, uh, of dead babies and adults. So we'll take that and then we multiply by the numbers of years. I'm going to multiply by how long RSV has kind of been since it was first discovered 
which uh, was 1956 is the first year technically discovered in humans. So 64 years, multiply that um, <clears throat> by our mileage that we got before, so 97.3 miles, and then we're going to get 6,421.8 miles. So if we wanted to reach the moon, the moon's 38,900 miles away, we'd only get about 0.026% uh, of the way there. So not even close to the moon. Uh, if we wanted to stack our dead babies and adults head to toe, uh, just to reach the top of the Empire State Building, which stands at 1,454 feet, uh, we could reach the top 353 times. So it's a, it's a lot of... It's a lot of babies, dead babies. Uh, if we tried to wrap our dead around the circumference of the Earth, which is 24,901 miles, uh, we'd only get about 0.26% uh, of the way around. So, less than, uh, you know, no, more than a tenth of a percent, but, uh, you know, about a quarter of one percent. So. so, by far, not, not the deadliest pathogen we've talked about on this show. Uh, but it's still concerning. Like I said, typically, uh, for those of you who have children out there, many of you probably already, if you've, if you've raised children, they probably had RSV and you didn't even know it because it's just a cold that gets passed around. Uh, but for whatever reason this year, more hospitalizations. Like I said, don't know if it's from immune debt, from not having those antibodies from prior years to help us kind of fight it. Uh, still remains to be seen. And there's still a lot of uh, winter time left too, so RSV season. It was all, it's also started to show up earlier this year, too. Typically, it wasn't something that you'd see uh, in summer months. And even this past summer, there were hospitals reporting higher cases of RSV. So be curious to see uh, just how far, or not how far, but how, you know, uh, how, how much of an effect uh, it has over the course of the winter. But uh, anyway, that's what I got for you on RSV. Uh, hope you enjoyed it. Uh, this is going to conclude this episode. Uh, hope you're enjoying the show. Please, as always, leave feedback if you want, uh, suggestions or any ideas. Uh, you can email me at youmakemesickpod at gmail.com. And as always, remember to wash your hands and this winter, cover your nose if you're going to sneeze. And if you're like me, try not to spit when you talk. Take it easy. I think you can. Even if it's your own? Ah!